This week on Trek, Mary Kill, Jack, Vadic, Worf. Next. Trek, Mary, Kill. Hi, I'm Brian. I'm Joel. Welcome to Trek, Mary, Kill, a Star Trek podcast that's very precise with its timing, Jean-Luc Picard. Joining me is Joel. He's a writer and content producer who has also created a charity fundraiser called Trek Against ALS, which was started last year to help out Margot Moraskovitz, who was Jerry Ryan's stand-in on the TV show Body of Proof and the last two seasons of Star Trek Picard. Margot has been dealing with a progressively worsening case of ALS. Uh, so this is fantastic that, Joel, that you set this up. This is great. And welcome to Trek Mary Kill. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, so you've basically, you tweeted out last year, you know, your childhood heroes are stepping up to help your dear friend Margot and the ALS Association. You had Jerry Ryan uh, do a video with her. Brent Spiner's, uh, you know, created awareness. Jonathan Frakes, LeVar Burton, Michelle Hurd. Uh, that's fantastic that you've uh, gotten them, gotten the gang together to help out a dear friend. Uh, is there anything you can say about Trick Against ALS and the updates or, or what people can do to help? Yeah, so I guess I'll just give the background of it and then where we are now. The background is that Margot came to my birthday party last August uh, and actually emailed me right before she was about to leave to come and said, I have had this diagnosis. My speech is slurred. If you think it's going to be a bummer for me to be at your party, I totally understand and I can not come if you don't want me to. And I was like, don't be ridiculous. So she came, we started talking. She mentioned that she was very soon going to have to stop working because the disease, and I don't know, for the listeners who don't know ALS, it just shuts down the parts of the body one at a time, as uh, Jerry says in the video. So uh, that video came about because I said to Margot, who was Jerry's stand-in, I said, do you think Jerry would record a GoFundMe video? And frankly, Margot, understandably, having gotten this terminal diagnosis uh, that also killed her mother, was like, I'm sure she would, but I don't think anyone would give anyway, and it doesn't matter, and just was like so bummed out. And I was like, Margot, you know Star Trek fans. If Jerry records a video at, and she tweets it, we'll raise money and we'll cover the looming medical bills that you have. And uh, to my great disappointment, actually, I set up the shoot and uh, all the stuff and then couldn't be there myself because I had to be away on another shoot for my actual job. But Jerry came, a friend of mine ran the shoot. She was wonderful. She said, you know, do you think it would be beneficial if, other people chimed in and did self-shot stuff, and we were like, yes, of course, that would be awesome. And she texted the others, and they recorded, and then they sent it all uh, to a friend of mine who edited it together, and we put out this video. Uh, and just yesterday, uh, last night, cro crossed $200,000, which was our original goal, which is amazing. Fantastic. Uh, and, uh, yeah, the the... We have now we've decided to stretch it. Margot's condition deteriorated faster, sadly, than anyone really expected, and now is requiring twenty four seven live in care. So we decided to, while the money's still coming in, increase the fundraising and anything that's left over after she passes uh, will go to the ALS Association. 
Okay, so uh, GoFundMe is uh, the hosting site. Is there a direct link or anything that you want to mention? I'll put it in the show notes, of course, too. But if anyone's just listening, uh, is there a the GoFundMe? Does it have like a forward slash, you know, Jerry Ryan? Yeah, no, no, no. So it's it's we we got a URL uh, for it, and it's trekagainstals.com. The video, if I say so myself, having uh, you know edited it together and stuff or co-edited it together is really lovely. And the Trek people have been super lovely about it and retweeted it and all that stuff. And, and, and folks have given to the initiative. A couple people have asked, uh, and I don't want to say much more than that, but yes, people have given from the show. Star Trek fans definitely come out, definitely support. And you've got Jerry Ryan asking for your help. You're not going to let, Captain Seven down, are you? So Captain Seven. She's reaching through the TV and asking for your help. Are you gonna let her down? Oh, you know what one thing you said in the in the run-up in the setup of all that, it implies that Jerry Ryan is on maybe perhaps a text chain with some other Trek people. Can you confirm or deny this? I mean, I don't know if they have a chain. She certainly has their phone numbers. <laughs> Uh, like she disappeared. The next generation cast has a text chain, and and so I'm I'm definitely curious to know if the other shows have similar things. I'm I'm doubting as much as I love the show. I'm doubting Deep Space Nine has one. So <laughs> I'm doubting that yeah, cast really <laughs> keeps in touch. But uh, and I'm sure the original uh, the folks that are still alive from the original series definitely don't have one. That's right. That's right. <laughs> I don't know, by the way, because you asked about my interactions with the Trek stars and. Uh, they're relatively minimal relative to Trek against ALS, but I do have a couple of good Trek cast member stories uh, that I could share if that's about interest. And if it's not, then we, we can just gloss over. Well, this is the, this is the whole nested memory cell we can access now. This is the a great time to get into the, you know, how did you get into Star Trek? Do you remember your, have a clear first memory of it? What brought you to it? Yeah, uh, so my dad was a huge Star Trek fan, and I I was a little bit young in the first seasons of The Next Generation, but the first episode of Star Trek that I watched was the season five into six cliffhanger, where they find Data's head in a cave in San Francisco, which I've rewatched recently and kind of found hilarious because they call the Enterprise back to be like, you should see this. And they don't like tell them why. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like putting myself in the position of like, if this were real, like, they'd be like, listen, you got to come back. There's something terrible. We're not going to tell you what it is. And then like, they just like pull back uh, a, a burlap cover. And here's the head of your third in command or whatever. And I'm like, John, yeah. forget, forget tensions with the Romulans or what's going on with the Cardassians. We need you to come back to earth. <laughs> well, we need you to come back to Earth, but not tell you why in advance. It's only once they're there that they're like, this is what we wanted you to see. And I'm like, you had to probably fly for days across the galaxy being like, what is wrong? Did somebody have an aneurysm or something? Like, it's just, there's no, like, you could at least, like, say, like, listen, you put it in an email. Listen, we're really sorry. Uh, there's appears to have been some kind of temporal anomaly. We need you to come back and talk about it. But none of that occurred to me when I saw it at the age of nine. I thought it was super awesome. It was the season finale, and then the previous season episodes were running all summer, all summer, every weeknight at six, 
on uh, on channel twenty, and I watched every episode and like fully caught up in time for the premiere of season six, and uh, and I just loved it. And from there, I was totally hooked. Started reading all the books, uh, and my dad showed me the old Star Trek a few episodes of the original series, but it wasn't as easy to do at the time because you didn't have streaming. So we had to like go and like choose a few on VHS to buy and watch. And I've just been a huge fan ever since. We ran into each other. The last time we've seen each other live was 2019. And I know you remember this because you took a picture, but again, just random complete fluke audience. I, uh, in a frenzy when they announced that Star Trek Picard was coming out and they had the Comic-Con comic-con trailer they also said but outside of comic-con they're having a pop-up star trek picard event thing and i just drove down to san diego i was like you know what i'm not going to comic-con but i want to go to this and i i don't know what it's going to be i don't know if it's going to be cool or not and then as i'm coming in joel is coming out he took a picture of me with my friends it was really nice so you're our bona fide really (laughs) i have thought about that weekend a lot uh and thought about it a lot during like the the whole COVID episode that we have recently emerged from. But uh, like that was such a fun weekend for me out and about. And just like, I I actually spoke at that Comic-Con on one of the gazillion panels that they had and uh, walked the floor and I'd never been there and just was so, it was like one of the most fun weekends I have ever had. And then when the year anniversary came up in 2020 and then again in 2021 and you couldn't do it the same way, it was like there was this acute sense of loss. And I'm so glad that it'll actually be back to normal and running again this year. What were your panels? Uh, it was one panel. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm laughing, actually, because of something that happened in another panel I'll mention in a second. My panel was about breaking into the entertainment industry as a writer because I ran a a career development mentoring program for up and coming writers for a whole bunch of years. What I'm giggling about actually is that I went to this panel on Harry Potter with this woman that, that came down to meet me that I, I was kind of in love with at the time and who was very Christian and I am not. And like this Harry Potter panel, one of the guys is like, you know, I like to live in a universe where there are wizards and where magic happens and where, and like just gushing about it. And I just leaned over to her and I was like, is this what Bible study is like? (laughs) (laughs) And she was like, basically, yeah. Well, speaking of fantasy camp, if we're going (laughs) to, if I can expand that out, now let's hear about your Trek, your Trek legends, uh, knowing it, knowing them, I think, said here in the notes that, you know, uh, Tim Russ, you've interacted with Jonathan Frakes. I do like to ask people who come on, you know, how close have you been to experiencing it? You know, I, I don't know any of these people. I, you know, I'm always curious to know um, people who've met them or have any sort of relationship with them. Anything that you're comfortable talking about, I guess. I realized after I wrote that, that actually my very best story about a Trek cast member is Walter Koenig. And that sadly... A friend of mine who was a writer died very suddenly in 2016, and he was very young. He was only like 41, 
and he was a giant Star Trek fan. I was a giant Star Trek fan. That was something that we'd bonded over and in memoriam to him. Some friends of his uh, and I put together a reading of one of his unproduced scripts, and I knew somebody who I knew was friends with Walter, and I knew it would mean so much to my friend and his family. I mean, obviously, he wasn't there to see it, but his family was, if Walter would be in this reading. And, uh, I mean, literally, my friend was in a coma when he died, and he was listening to his parents have put music from Star Trek on his headphones because they knew that that was his safe and happy place as he had his final moments. And I wrote that to Walter, and I said, we would be so honored if you played this role in this reading. And Walter wrote right back and said, absolutely, tell me where to be and when. I'll be there. And in advance of going to pick him up, I had thought about it. I was like, wow, like, you know, this legend is whatever. I should have like some pretty girl that I'm friends with pick him up, right? Like that's who you want if you're, and then I was like, no, screw that. I want to pick him up. I want to hang out with him. So then I picked him up and he, and we sat in traffic for like two hours as one does in LA and really got to know each other and just really clicked and felt like somebody you know, I'd known for a really long time. We we're both very political. When I, after the reading, which was wonderful, and he was wonderful, I spoke to my phone, his address to navigate back. And he laughed. It was like not something that he had seen or was used to seeing. And he went, wow, it is just not my world anymore. <laughs> and I went, well, you realize that Yes. The world that you kind of created. (laughs) And he looked at me and I went, Walter, are you aware that Google's voice recognition computing program is called Project Majel? (laughs) And he did not know this. And I mean, Majel Barrett was a friend of his and they worked together and he just had tears in his eyes and he went, no, I, I didn't. And I said, Walter, this may not feel like your world, but you made it. And he just started to cry and we drove home. It was just awesome. Joel, that's great. I mean, you touched his heart and it's they've done so much for people like us over the years. That's wonderful. And he touched me. I mean, the fact that he did this reading for a memoriam of someone that he didn't know just because, you know, it was the nice thing to do and did such a great job with it. I mean, he tore the, tore the house down. Well, that's going to be a tough story to top, but I think Terry Metalis and crew might try to do that by getting us to talk about the second episode of Star Trek Picard's third season called Disengage premiered on Paramount plus February 23rd, 2023 written by Christopher Monfett with Sean Tretta directed by Douglas Arniakovsky. memory alpha synopsis is this aided by seven of nine and the crew of the USS Titan Picard makes a shocking discovery that will alter his life forever and puts him on a collision course with the most cunning enemy he's ever encountered. Mm, I don't know about that, the memory, memory alpha. But anyway, meanwhile, <laughs> Raffi races to track a catastrophic weapon and collides with the familiar ally. It's Worf, everybody. She, she meets up with Worf. It's great. It is the one part of that episode that actually, or one part of that storyline in that episode, the B story, that actually is great. Uh I, we'll get into that. I have issues with that <laughs> B story in this episode. So at the end of the first episode, we discover that Beverly Crusher has another son 
and we learn that his name is Jack and he doesn't know who his father is or more correctly, I never had a father. And then we find out that the big giant alien mystery ship at the end of episode one is being captained by Amanda Plummer. I, I mean, Captain Vatic. And, uh, and she really, really wants Jack Crusher for reasons unknown. And then, of course, the episode's really about Picard basically being in denial that that's his son. And yes, by the end, we find out it's his son. So is there anything uh, before we get into the grades, Joel, that you want to mention before that doesn't necessarily fit into our grading scheme? When I was watching with my dad, my mom was like coming in and out of the room and was like, I think that that's his son. And we were like, <laughs> yes, we get that. <laughs> Well intuited, mom. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess in these mystery box shows, they they stretch out certain obvious things for too long to try to get you to keep watching. And, you know, I guess it's a good thing that they really jump into it right away with Riker saying like, hey, huh? Pretty similar, mm-hmm. don't you think? <laughs> and, yeah. you know, to your point about the B-plot, absolutely not the strongest part of these the first half of the season, but I don't know. I'm, I'm a softie for the Raffi storyline for the addiction element of the storyline. And so there was a big part of this that actually worked really well for me prior to Worf being involved, which by the way, I don't know if you predicted this, but in episode one, when she's talking to the uh, text on screen, when, as soon as it says, you are a warrior, I'm like, Oh my God, it's Worf. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, who else I could it be thought. okay all right so to me i was like well, also once you see the device of like well they're concealing somebody's identity yes <laughs> and there's a limit like we know where picard Riker, and beverly are so that narrows that's it down right. to four possibilities it's that's definitely right. not troy yeah okay that's that's gonna work yeah uh, we saw him in the trailer so yeah exactly so all right well let's let's roll into the grades then start with great scenes there are two things that really stand out to me here like the truly great acting scene is the wordless acknowledgement between Beverly and Picard about who Jack is and the way that those two actors play it. And they don't have to say anything. And you just see the two of them going through it. I thought was beautifully done. And I, I give huge hats off to the writing and directing for that. Uh, and I'm so glad, and of course to the actors, but I'm so glad that Gates McFadden finally had a chance to like show what a fantastic actor she is with this show. And that moment really encapsulated that for me. Terry Metalis was interviewed in Collider. I'll be reading segments of it for all of our episodes because they're pretty candid. He said, you know, that w- I was lucky enough to do that before on another show for another big moment between two characters on 12 Monkeys. It was a key moment that happened with two characters. I remember the network in the studio at the time, they were telling me there's no way that can work. There's no way you can convey basically an entire conversation of dialogue with looks. Hold on, Terry. I'm pretty sure most of us have seen movies where you can do that pretty easily. (laughs) Yeah, but I also know networks and studio (laughs) notes. And I am so confident that like part of my issues with the Rafi storyline that we'll get to, I'm like, these are network notes saying, but you have to clarify, Yes, how are we going to know? It's my favorite thing to do is when a very obvious network note is coming in to just be like, let's see what they wrote. Uh, But to finish his thought, he says, but there's something absolutely beautiful about these two characters 
who haven't seen each other in decades. And she's been absent the entire episode because she's been in that cryopod. At the most intense moment, Riker brings her on the bridge and they lock eyes. And he, Patrick Stewart, Picard, knows it. It felt to me that it could work. I wasn't sure if I was going to get it past Patrick, but he went for it. He never doubted that it could work. And so we did it. That's a great behind the scenes. And he and he points out like, like what would the what would the scene have been with dialogue? Right. Jean Luc Beverly is Jack. Yes. <laughs> like what what are they gonna do? <laughs> so yes, it was the right call. It worked out well. I thought that it was brilliantly done. I want to tell a quick short anecdote. This was a show that I worked on uh, called Hunters, where like they're investigating something and. Like they find the clue and it's like, oh my gosh, the guy we're looking for, he, he's not here. He's in California. And like the next scene, they're driving up the highway in California and we get this note back that says, how did they get to California? Cause the prior scene, they were in New York and it's like, well, they took a, like an airplane or something like you don't need to explain that. Like the audience will get it. Like we're, we're time has passed and now we're in a new place. They'll get it. We don't need to explain this. And so I have, I have a project, a film project that's about a real guy who was a con man in the sixties. He's, you know, been out of the game for a long time now, but his stories are amazing. And he talks like you would imagine a con man from the sixties talks like, and we're breaking down what the movie of his story is going to be. And I explain what the concept of shoe leather is to him at one point early on as we're breaking the story. And then, and I use the, that story from uh, the airplane from hunters to explain like what expository dialogue and shoe leather is. And then later we're like two weeks later, we're neck deep in the story and we're figuring out like an expository thing. And he goes, you know what? We can we can cut that hole back and forth. We don't need the shoe leather. We're we're in the fucking airplane. We're in the fucking airplane, man. We don't need the shoe leather. Like, you're right. We don't. We cut it. I mean, I want people to get from this like being in a room. It's its own culture. It's its own thing. And then the the network will come in and they'll do things to it. Mm-hmm. And you have to go with it most of the time, unless you have a really powerful showrunner who's able to be persuasive. But and even then, it's not all the and time that then. they're successful. Yeah. Um, and what else almost everything in this season of Picard, which I realize we're just talking about this one episode, almost everything that really and overall, I loved it. Everything that annoyed me, I'm like that has network note written all over it. Well, it, you can find it in in all these Star Trek shows, the new ones. It's a, effectively the top of each scene is a recap of the previous scene. Or exactly. if you're if you're jumping storylines, a recap of the storyline that you're now in up to that point. And Correct. sometimes it can be done. I would elegant is probably the too kind of a word. Sometimes it can be done in a way that's not cloying or just outright annoying. But most of the time it can't. And yeah, absolutely. So my question to you is, Joel, knowing that that is a thing that's going to happen, I guess what I'm saying is why is there no distinction between if it's a network show a pay, or a streaming show? They're treated the same. I, I don't understand that. <laughs> you know, that your approach, they approach production, producing these shows 
as like, we want to make them for the binge. And then none of the behavior of making the shows feeds into the idea of binging these things. It's still, you're well, running with they the are releasing model. week to weeks. They, they are sure, like, but by serializing them, releasing week to week. Yeah, but by serializing them, I still think that implies that you're setting them up to be binged. Like once they live on your service, they're all meant to be watched in bulk. You know, I think the releasing on a weekly schedule is because you have to fill out your weekly release because you're not Netflix and you're not releasing, you know what I mean? Like a lot of stuff all the time. I hear what you're saying. I'm just saying like, it's a weird approach of like, we're going to make these serialized things that interconnect, but we're also going to treat it like it's CSI. And it's like a weird marriage of the two. A hundred percent. And that uh, I actually had this written down. I don't mean to jump too far forward of like things that are of its time. I feel like that is of this time that we are, that's not going to last forever. There is going to come a point where the streamers recognize that having a recap at the top of the show is enough for your audience to stick with it. And and I, I do think that that shift will happen, but uh, I think it's going to take a little bit of time and probably a little bit more job security for the people who are working at the streaming services to have the confidence to allow the writers to do that. What was your other great scene that you had? So the other great scene was the, it's a couple different things like the, and they're all like the exterior space battle type stuff. When the Titan comes in and breaks the, the tractor beam, like flies in and boom, breaks the tractor beam. And then she throws a ship at the Titan, like, that kind of of effects driven or effects dependent storytelling was not available in previous iterations of Star Trek. You know, the 90s Star Treks, like they just didn't have the ability to do that in the same way with effects. And it's just cool to see new battle mechanics and things like that that are creative and that I've never seen before. And I thought that was just so fun. Like, yeah, that's cool. That would be like, and it just brought out the nine-year-old nerd in me all over again. Just like (laughs) I've joked uh, with friends that my favorite part of the content is when spaceships shoot laser beams at other spaceships. (laughs) (laughs) Content doesn't get any better than that. (laughs) That That is the best kind of content. And like, this is the best kind of that kind of content. And I was very psyched about it. I liked the uh, break up the transport or the tractor beam as well uh, as a sequence, an action sequence, nice heroic music of the Titan coming in. You had Shaw's mm-hmm. cute, cutesy line where they're like, all right, bring those guys back. And it's like, there's actually four life signs we're detecting now. And he goes, ah, bring them all on board. We're basically a hotel now. And then the business with the transport inhibitor which we had seen Picard putting up on the Elios bridge before to prevent Jack from being beamed away comes right back into play as like, Oh, it's, it's, it's uh, inhibiting the rescue. Now you old man, <laughs> but it gives uh, Picard the hero moment of shooting them away. I just thought it was a nice little action sequence also to what you're saying, but I had several actually great scenes and, and you can challenge me if you'd like it's I'm, I'm feel like I can defend them, but the first scene with Raffi where she's talking to her handler and he, she's being told to disengage uh, and she's requesting an in-person meet and she's being told deny. And she feels like 117 people died. And I, if I had been faster and she's blaming it on herself, 
I said this in our last episode, you know, it's Michelle Hurd sitting in a chair by herself yelling at nothing. And uh-huh. she has to be convincing in that moment. And I totally understand because I watched the first two seasons of Picard too, folks. I totally understand why the Raffi character may not be people's favorite. And there might be something kind of grating about the way the character goes, but they're recontextualizing her in she's in Starfleet security. So she actually has agency or the ability to do something with her paranoia. Whereas in the other two seasons, she didn't, she was basically a loser, right? That was kind of at the end of the day, she was just paranoid and neurotic and it, and it went nowhere. She just aggravated everybody, but here she gets to do something about it. And she's always pushing and she's very on mission and very focused. And I think Michelle Hurd, when directed well and given good material, she's able to convey a certain presence and power on the screen, which, you know, growing up watching 90s Trek, that's all we got was like, can it, does this actor have a screen persona at all that they can use? And so I like that. I thought it was a nice scene. Also, as a, as a storyline, this B plot, it's really unclear how it's connecting to all the big stuff with this terrorist attack and all that. Raffi right now just feels like, remember her? She was on the other seasons of the show. So you have to kind of make it work on its own for, for the moment. And I think this is a good sequence uh, starting point for that sequence in this episode. I'm with you on where it goes, but I'll hold that for a second. I like the scene that leads me into my next great scene where Rafi goes and talks to her ex-husband who just so happens to be on the same planet. They're, they're on Metallus Prime. They're, it's it's silly, but whatever. I'm, I'm going to go with it. It's fine. But she needs her ex-husband to help him, help her be introduced to this Ferengi named Sneed had something to do with the guy who's being set up to been the one to do the terrorist attack. And he said, he tells the whole story of season one. Like you confronted our son. He was weirded out by that. All he remembers is when you were in an, all he remembers is when you were in an addict and uh, she's trying to get him to introduce her to this Frankie. And he says, look, I know what you're, you're sounding like how you used to sound. I will either put in a good word for you with our son, meaning like she's cleaned up her life and she's working with Starfleet again, which Joel, I don't know why she'd blow her cover, but okay, we'll go with that. You know, <laughs> she's really trying to get in with the husband and say like, I've cleaned up. Everything's great. He says, I'll, I'll put in a good word or put in a good word with our son, or I'll put in a good word with Sneed to introduce you, but I won't do both. And as yeah. really generic as the conflict is, Again, thinking about the previous two seasons of Picard, at least like that is such clear drama that it was that was partially interesting because of how clear it was. And it played on what we knew about the character that I liked it. I just dug it. And it's like, if yes, of course, she's going to pick staying on the mission. We know how it's going to go. But just to see the choice and see her have to play the choice and him and the guy playing her ex-husband reacting to that being like of course you junkie you can't help yourself of course you're going to do this i thought it all worked that was great interesting i'm glad it worked for you <laughs> uh, i'm just saying because... like it was such basic it was such basic drama that it was refreshing to see it in on one of these new star trek shows which sometimes forgets to do basic drama so that was why yes and i have like look for one thing michelle heard recorded the most beautiful video for Margot. Like I would never say no word about her. And I also like, I have seen her do great stuff when she has the material on Picard 
I also know people that worked with her on Blind Spot and talked about how amazing she was on that. Um, she's not the issue. The having her like a whole scene of her doing expository monologue at a computer screen. I've now watched that scene twice. The third time that I watched the episode, I fast forwarded through it because I just couldn't do it again. Uh, like it, it feels that whole scene to me feels like network note. Like we're going to have to recap and like having her do it on her own. It's bad enough when you've got two people recapping stuff that they both know to each other, having her do it, like talking to herself. It just, like I said, glad it worked for you. To me, I just found it not like in an otherwise good episode, I found it a little cringeworthy. And then the scene with her ex-husband, I liked what they were going for with it, but to me it felt so compressed and rushed to do all that in one scene. I get it. It's not the point of the show. She's got to go and find Sneed and get, like, go in with no plan and then have, like, screw herself and then get rescued by Worf. I understand that, but those scenes did not do it for me. The Shrike hails the Titan and we meet Captain Vatic for the first time, Amanda Plummer. I think she's that's where she says good morning in the soul system. I yes. think it's morning. And Amanda Plummer jumps off the screen immediately. And it's oh, yeah. it's incredible and she's fantastic and and her villain is making smoking cool again, but also a sign of I'm a bad guy, because who else you know what I mean? <laughs> I liked her smoking. That was great. Right before that happens, Shaw says to Picard and Riker as they come onto the bridge, Oh, you boys are in so much trouble. Uh, for some mm-hmm. reason, Shaw was kind of annoying to me the first time around in this episode, but the second and third time rewatching for this one, Shaw's point of view is very clear. He doesn't want to be there, but not because he's he's like anti being in Starfleet. He's like, we shouldn't be here. Like we have been put in a terrible situation and we d- I don't know what's going on. So it's better to just get my crew to safety. Makes perfect sense. His snarkiness made more sense to me, but meeting Captain Vatic, and we'll talk about her more in a little bit. She starts being menacing and all that stuff. And I think she throws the shuttle. That's when she throws the ship the first time. The first view screen conversation. That was great. I could have done without the way Sydney LaForge delivers her like, Basically, you can do anything with the right engineering skills the way she delivers. I know. I'm like, you just had a ship thrown at you. Like, you're not riled at all. Uh, I, but just to get it way out in front, Ashley Sharp Chestnut is fantastic. I'm tipping my hand for one of my favorite characters from the season. She's great. But at least in that moment and some of her other moments where she's talking about her dad, I'm like, all right. So, and that was one of them. But uh, I can keep going because I, I have a few more. Um, oh, please, I, uh, yeah. and I agree with you about the Sydney LaForge on both counts. That the line was silly, but also like she is overall great, and like I want her on the bridge of a spinoff. Shaw confronts Jack. This is uh, this is in the briefing room. He divulges like this guy's a con artist, and he goes through all of the list of his names. There's a lot going on in that scene because Picard and Riker are kind of trying to get information out of Jack. He's being resistant. And then when Shaw comes in with security guards saying this guy's under arrest, we have we should hand him over. Uh, there's there's all the issues of like, what was I? I? I've totally lost my notes here. Where is it? 
Oh, he relieves seven of duty for insubordination. There's kind of a lot going on in that scene. And I feel mm-hmm. like all the actors are really on point there. The tension points all make sense to me. No one was so goofy that it takes you out of it. And there is a mystery. I very clearly in the first episode or this episode the first time around, like wondering like what's going on with Jack. Even if I know as an audience member, that's Picard's son. I still don't know what, why Vatic wants him. What's going on yes. here. So I think it did a good job of, of being like, there is a mystery. How much of this should the Titans crew be involved in it though? And so I like the push pull of that. Uh, and I like Picard and Riker in the turbo lift. Uh, Riker saying, honestly, do you not see what's yes. going on here? <laughs> and, and Jonathan Frakes just getting actually angry at, at, at uh, Patrick Stewart or at John Luke was great. And then John Luke kind of gives him that brush off of like, will please don't speculate. I don't even right. think he says, please. I think he says, will don't speculate. And it's, it's just clear denial. And then that leads into Picard confronting Jack in the brig. I like the scene. I, I, I get if you don't, but I, I think it's a great scene because, well, first it's the first big scene together. I was able to imagine a similar scene happening in like TNG season seven. This doesn't quite happen in the episode where it gets his fake son, but it, it's a scene that's we've seen a version of before. And so it was interesting for me watching who's been very concerned with how frail Patrick Stewart has been in the run of the show, watching him in this moment, because he's playing, he's trying to play Jack tough. He's trying to jam him up to get him to confess the truth. The, the scene is also interesting in a lot of, in a few other ways. It introduces the Y shaped corridor that they are going to reuse 90 times this season for the <laughs> Titan. They built one hallway and it's got a Y shape and they kind of film it from different angles. Uh, and back Mm -hmm. certain things up to it. And so that was fun that was introduced here. I think the writing is really sharp in it. The the script does a lot of parallel writing, though, which at times it kind of grates. Other times it seems like on the page, the whole script read almost poetically in a way. You know, it's it's kind of uh, summed up in the way Jack says, is anybody you know still mm-hmm. the person you knew? But there's a lot of that, like this and that, and saying the same word again, but having a different meaning for it. They do that a lot in the script. That really comes to a head here. I agree. And it works better in some places than in others. Yes, yes. I think when, like, the way that Jack says that is great. No, I think it's a great scene for Ed Spleers. I think more than anything else, I'm talking about it from Picard's standpoint, but... For us getting to have any sense of Jack. And and by the way, the, he, the episode starts with a flashback of him basically being Han Solo. And that, it fell, fell completely flat to me. It was kind of annoying when he's like, Mon ami, aren't we freedom fighters instead? Just seemed like he was coming on very strong. And he's doing that here too. But he's literally caged. So it sort of restrains all that energy into a person who's trapped right now. So it makes more sense Mm -hmm. that he's coming at it, coming so strong. And I don't know. I think it worked. I think the two of them worked well off of each other in this scene. Yes. I know that Terry Metalis said that he cast Edge Beliers in the role, even though he's a little bit old looking for it. You know, he's 34 years old in real life. The character is supposed to be 23 or 24 because he could go toe to toe with Patrick Stewart. And that just comes through so much in this scene for the first time in in such a powerful way. And then the two of them continue to have a really great dynamic throughout the show. I don't know what your uh, what the Shatner means, 
but uh we'll get there we'll get there we'll get there we'll get there (laughs) uh because regardless of what you mean it to mean like i actually thought that some of the mugging and the way that he says some of the lines and the bravado and the whatever felt very old school kirk to me i love that yeah they're definitely i wouldn't say trying to figure it out but they were definitely throwing everything at the character at the role at the audience of all the dimensions of jack as quickly as possible for sure after this scene though i think the episode kind of makes takes a turn uh, that it's right after the scene that you've got the beheadings with with uh, with Sneed, uh, Jack breaking out of the brig, and then it's not really until that last moment where you mentioned with the the wordless yes, it's your son, mm-hmm. and and Vadik saying because she's been giving them an hour time limit, she comes back and she says. Shaw says, why are you doing this? Why are you changing your mind? And Picard says, because he's my son. And then Shaw realizes, well, okay, well, I'm not going to budge him there. And then Vadik says, how very precise with your timing, Jean-Luc Picard, and your answer. And then Patrick Stewart gets 10 years younger, and he says, engage with with joy and energy and oomph I haven't seen for <laughs> in a while. And it, it was great. It was a nice, nice capper to the episode. I agree with that. It's funny watching this season and particularly like that's one of the moments the episode before with Riker uh you know doing their Butch Cassidy kind of thing and then other things later in the season that we won't talk about that I was reminded of something that I've given the advice to a lot of up-and-coming writers which is that people will tell you the most in store important thing is great characters and that is only kind of true. The thing that is the most important is great relationships, which usually comes from great characters, but that you can take the character of Jean-Luc Picard and put him in a vacuum, which in many ways, for all intents and purposes, he was Mm -hmm. in most of seasons one and two, but there isn't enough tension and interest and emotion in the relationships to make that character what he can be and that once he's back in an environment with these other people with whom he has these relationships all of a sudden it's like ah there's Jean-Luc Picard because people are defined by their relationships and like it was a very unusual and interesting experience to take a really well-known character and completely divorce them from their world for the first two seasons of Picard and see if it works and I think overall it didn't and then you do this A-B test where you put them back with the characters and the relationships that made that character awesome in the first place. And it's like, ah, yes, I I remember why I like this guy. All right, best Trek tropes. So the the big one that comes right at the end after the scene that we've been talking about is the let's go hide in the nebula. (laughs) Uh, Yes, that's great. Yes. (laughs) It just, it's so funny to me. And I, I, I was watching this with a couple friends who had not seen much Star Trek. They watched the first episode with me. I was living with them at the time. They watched the first episode of Picard with me, and they were like, wow, that was really good. Like, we want to see something older. So then we watched Wrath of Khan and Best of Both Worlds. And in (laughs) both Wrath of Khan and Best of Both Worlds, I had not thought about it. I hadn't watched either of them in a long time. 
they go and hide in the nebula. And then at the end of this episode, it's like, we're going to go hide in the nebula. And I was like, yeah, yeah, they're playing the hits. <laughs> and like my friends, as far as they're concerned, they've now watched six hours of Star Trek. <laughs> and they're like, do, do they always hide in the nebula? And I was like, I think that they're doing it in this as an homage to what has come before. Uh, but I thought it was. <laughs> but to answer your question, I, about a quarter of the time, yeah, they're hiding in nebula. Yeah, it's like, what are we gonna do? Well, we got we gotta hide in the nebula. <laughs> Duh, they can't find us in a nebula. That's just common sense. It's space. It's yeah. space fog. If we wind up counting uh, Star Trek Picard season three as one of the TNG movies, then in four of the five movies, some sort of nebula-like thing has been the the thrust of the the story. The Nexus and Generations. First Contact, you don't have that. Unless you want to count the Temporal Wake, which you shouldn't. And then you've no. got Insurrection has the Briar Patch. And Nemesis, they're fighting in a nebula. <laughs> so, well, they're fighting in uh, the Briar Patch in Insurrection as well. So, uh, And then this one got the nebula again. So definitely in the next generation. Yeah. They, 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 that's playing the hits. Um, I had a red, uh, red Alert. That's our co-host, Kristen. She always likes to call out when they do the Red Alert. It's a Good trope. We get it. We get that a couple of times. Uh, and then the mm-hmm. other one I had was the villain giving our heroes one hour to comply. I was like, mm, those, yeah, those, it's a good one. The time countdowns that they get the Romulans, the Cardassians, you have one hour, you know, get a lot of that. So Vatic though, with the smile is kind of like you have one hour <laughs> to start pecking at you. Um, yeah. Well, uh, Khan does it too. That's right. I give, oh, and even in Star Trek three, I give two minutes for you and your gallant crew. <laughs> yeah. Uh, all right. Well, it's a good way of, you always want to put a ticking clock on something. It's just that when you have a scenery chewing villain, which was my other Trek trope that I put, like, they can say it explicitly. <laughs> Perfect. But yes. They can say the quiet park loud. Yes. Uh, chewing scenery is definitely a Star Trek villains thing. That's the long standing tradition. That's great. These are, I feel like this is a great list that we have put together for this one. Worst Trek tropes. Uh, worst Trek tropes. I have two. I don't know. Okay. I'm not a fan of calling out percentages so that Elio's computer is like power levels at 13%. Structural integrity field down to blah, blah, blah. Then power mm. percentages. Not, not, I don't know what it means. You know what I mean? <laughs> if it's 13%, does that mean it's failed? You know what I mean? Right. In, in in the next generation, they said that the containment field, if it drops below 15% or something like that, then then the field will effectively fail. That's okay. That tells me something. You've defined what that means. But like when shields are down to 30%, I'm like, does that mean they're basically gone? Does, I, don't, I don't, so it's annoying. And then dumb security officers, which I guess you need on every starship for action to happen, but... Jack's escape from the uh, from the brig was so blindingly stupid. It took me a while to recover from it while watching it. <laughs> uh, yeah, I actually the second time that I watched it was watching with and I was like, was that did I miss something the first time that would like make that make more sense? And no, I did not miss anything. Like It's just dumb. Yeah, it's forgivable, but it's dumb. I would say it could have been forgivable if it was perhaps a little more clever, but a device that maybe security would have found 
searching his person. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know. It's just, it's tough. Why put him in the brig at all? You know what I mean? Like I just, that, that could have been one way of working around it. Most of it's time quality. I think you already touched on this, but, but do you have any specifics? The, so one is the recapping, which, you know, it, it has, there's always been recapping in TV, but I do think that it's gotten worse. Uh, and or just how like non the, non character re- it's like never done in the character's voice. <laughs> it's right, right. That, anyway, keep going. <laughs> it's like I almost wish that the actor would just look at the TV and say, "Like the executive at Paramount Plus has instructed me that you should know this." <laughs> <laughs> I think the there are a few dialogue quirks that I notice in a lot of things, uh, and one of them especially because shows are so plot-driven now, like Next Generation was more character-driven now. With serialization, there's just more emphasis on plot, plot, plot. And it, the line, it's the only way. It's the only way. I'm the only way that we can do this. I'm the only one who can do this. This is the And, like, there are a couple instances of that in this episode that, like, what you're doing as a writer is, like, communicating to the audience, like, what you're about to see is somewhat contrived, but I have told you that it is the only way. <laughs> Therefore, you should go with it. And like it just it feels a little bit saying the quiet part loud again in a way that I don't love. I also it, it just drives me crazy. And now that I've said it, you're gonna see it if you haven't already in like so many TV shows, when a character says, That's not what this is about. <laughs> and like I love the scene where Picard or Frakes uh, or Riker rather says to Picard like you know are you not seeing what I'm seeing and there's it's just such a great scene and then he, he's like that's not what this is about and I'm like oh come on <laughs> that those are good ones uh, if you've listened to our strange new worlds episodes listeners then you'll know that I've definitely railed against certain quirks of modern writing and you've you've actually uncovered some other ones that now i'll be on the lookout for so i think when you say it's this is the only way what you made me also think is at least with picard every scene this is why some of the episodes in picard this season were kind of groundbreaking which is absurd to say but they took their time they let some scenes breathe but for the most part Mm -hmm. the way a lot of shows are made it feels like everyone's just rushing into a room and they're out of breath and so everything yes. has to happen very urgently and every, because you've got to keep the energy up. And whenever I think about why this is happening, I always fall back to, oh, the people paying for the show get bored. So you have to make them excited. I see. Makes a lot more sense now. And uh, it's frustrating for sure. My favorite thing that Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul did and that Vince Gilligan can get away with because he's Vince Gilligan is the act long scene. Like both of those shows have in a few episodes scenes that just last the entire act 15 minutes. And if you've got a really great scene, you can take your time that way. And it's done so rarely because I know, you know, I've been in those rooms and there's always so much pressure of like, we gotta, we gotta keep their attention. We gotta keep their attention. It's such a baller move when you do a, a long, slow scene and just trust that the audience is going to stay with you and pull it off. Like, that's my favorite thing in TV, and it's so rarely done. 
Yeah, I mean, I I know they have the data to back this up. So like, why are people watching? And so if you're just giving them more, oh, I like these characters. I like these two characters the most. Here's a five minute scene with just these two characters. Mm -hmm. What's the problem with that? (laughs) I don't know, but apparently it is a problem. My most of its time quality is a is a on story one and then maybe a personal thing. The on story one is I think references to rabbit holes and com- conspiracy theories is you know. Oh, in did you refer- say that out loud in this one? He does say rabbit holes. This is how it starts, Raffi, with your addiction. Is you start you know you oh, start God, yeah. in the drugs and seeing how they're going down rabbit holes and all that stuff. So I think that direct reference is very uh, of its time. And then the one that's maybe more of a annoyance for me than it is a genuine of its time quality but i think having sneed the ferengi letting him have stubble uh was was not <laughs> that was that was like we need to make the ferengi gritty and i'm like the ferengi don't yeah. need to be gritty i don't need that they're, they're they're kind of silly and they are serious because they mean what they say but you know they, they don't have to have stubble we don't need to see a grizzled ferengi it's not not important. Nor do we need a Ferengi to say ooh la la. Like right. oh wow, like you're you're a an arch villain from the eighties or something. It just it felt so on the nose. Yeah. Yeah. Uh a, a Ferengi crime boss makes perfect sense. Great. Totally. Good idea. Solid. Uh modern modernizing him to com, to comport with twenty first century ideas of what a futuristic alien space boss would look like which by the way that's the update they're not trying to make him look like a a criminal guy in the 21st century but what people living in the 21st century project a blade runner-esque future alien would look like (laughs) which is uh you're you're abstracting too much keep it simple it's a frame okay now it's time for the line must be drawn here great lines I have several great lines. I think there are a lot of great lines in this episode. We are cornered in space, which has no corners. That is a hilarious line. <laughs> Same with your, you already mentioned we're basically a hotel now. Yeah. No, Shaw had some great lines. And this, like I said, this time around, they were less annoying because his point of view was so crystal clear to me. I'm like, yeah, no, I, I got it. <laughs> also, he is, this whole episode keeps playing with the word engage, disengage. We're engaged now. Oh, they've engaged us, you know, and, and then Picard ending the episode saying engaged, you know, that that was a, a running motif in the episode. But, you know, Shaw takes it seriously once he realizes like, OK, well, we're in it now. And he even says that he's like, well, we're in it. We've got to deal with it now. I want to know who's out there uh, threatening us. So he's also, in my view, objectively right about most of the situation. Yeah. Yeah. Ensign, what just happened? She threw a ship at us, sir. <laughs> I, I enjoyed that. I thought that was great. Uh, Sydney's lying there. Well. This is a uh, Raffi says 117 are gone and Sneed is lying to cover for whoever did this. And then Worf on the screen says 118. Should you continue? Do not join the dead. I can just picture Worf saying the line. Okay. So him telling her not to join the dead. Great. Great Worf line. Yeah. Uh, the people who just like me are gamblers, low-level gangsters, the fathers of daughters everywhere. That was just like so, again, it's like, it's almost like a 19th century novel version of a rogue, but okay, whatever. Yeah, no, I, I liked it, yeah. Uh, another Shaw line, so it's us and the boogeyman at the edge of space. No cavalry in sight. I like that. That was good. 
And then his line, gentlemen, I'd like to introduce you to Jack Crusher, a.k.a. Jack Canby, John Carson, James Cole, and my personal favorite, Jarless Carvel. That one took a lot of imagination. Uh, I I like Star Trek trying to dip into the comedy writing of coming up with funny names uh, in that, at least in that scene, because you've got the setup that he's a con he's potentially a con artist that uh, Jarless Carvel, I, I thought was, was cute as well. So <laughs> I've always thought that Trek is at its best where it has a sense of humor. <laughs> I don't think Star Trek trying to be overtly funny, like going for the joke has always served it well, but not missing an opportunity to be funny in a funny situation. I definitely think that that's, I think that was kind of what the later Star Treks were maybe guilty of was passing up on joke opportunities and in the interest of making sure everyone's clear that we're taking it seriously. You know, I kind of think about insurrection and it's like they go out of their way to be sort of funny in a way that's not in character and it takes you out of it. But that's just one example. Uh, Riker, since when does Starfleet given the hostile demands? That man is wanted for trial, not execution. And we damn well know that's not a ship. It's a guillotine. Good, good Riker lines. Jonathan Frakes putting some good English on that delivery. Thought that was good. Uh, I like Jack. I, I liked most of the line landing on the guillotine. I was like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Ask yourself, is there anybody, you know, who's still the person you knew, or have you planted roots in your vineyard while everybody else moved on? Hey, listen, I'm sure a lot of the season is going to retcon or dump the earlier parts of Star Trek Picard, but sometimes I like to remember that this is the third season of Star Trek Picard. So you've got a, a development that goes right back to paying off something in season one, where I think in the first episode, Michael Chabon has him right. Was, am I, am I living or am I just waiting to die? (laughs) I'm like, great Patrick. We found John Picard at a great point in his life, (laughs) but I thought that was a nice payoff here. Vatic's line. It's been centuries since timepieces last ran on the mechanics of gears. And yet that persistent sound you hear is the gentle tick-tock of passing seconds. And I liked her line about what a Shrike does, about pecking and jabbing, but I won't read it here. Just, I've talked enough, and I've butchered all these wonderfully delivered lines that I enjoyed so much. Any other ones? No, but I think uh, to go back to your previous point about this being the third season of Picard, I've had a lot of issues with Picard as a show um, and you know story arcs that don't make a whole lot of sense and blah, 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 blah. But I think starting in this episode um, and onward through season three, I think that they did a really good job uh, and, you know, starting in that scene particularly of integrating the Picard who was from the next generation with the Picard that we saw in seasons one and two of Star Trek Picard, who often did feel like a little bit of a different character to me, but that by the end, like as they go through this, the way that they tell the story, I can see how like the old Picard is still in there and how those two things weave together and create a fuller character. And so in a way, I feel like starting with this episode and throughout the season, they did a really good job of kind of retconning a lot of stuff that wasn't great in my view in seasons one and two. Yeah, good point. Uh, all right, the Anton Caridian Award for Best Performance. Oh, Amanda Plummer. <laughs> yeah, that's who I had. <laughs> like, she's whoa, come on. Yeah, 
just fantastic. Terry Metalis said in his comments that they didn't shoot her until the end of the season. So they didn't mm. know what how Vatic was going to play. She didn't come in, I don't think, until episode five or six. So they didn't know like literally how any of this was going to work. And then I guess minute one in Video Village when she starts delivering, because all of her, most of her initial stuff is just on that view screen. So she's just talking into a camera. But apparently they all started hugging each other in Video Village because they were like, oh, this is going to work. And then to her credit, she maybe to her credit, but also maybe to some frustration, she never gave the same performance twice. <laughs> Have you seen any interviews with her? Like I went, I, I did a little Google for it because like, I don't know. I've seen her in a few different things, this Pulp Fiction over the years, but like, I don't know what her oh, Joel, what actually a great, is. Oh, what a great question. No, she exists completely on screen for me. So I married an axe murderer, Pulp Fiction. There's definitely a couple of other things I'm forgetting right now, but you know, that's it. I don't know what she sounds like IRL. I don't know any of that. Well, it sounds like you don't want to know, which is different from me who I'm like, who is this person? <laughs> well, sometimes it's just nice to let the mystery be. So that's, that's fair. That's fair. The Shatner. So the Shatner is not necessarily bad acting, quote unquote. I don't think Shatner is a bad actor. So the basis of it is in the original series, they had five or six day shooting schedules for some episodes. And so mm-hmm. Shatner just had to go for it because there's no time to direct. There's no time for like more than one or two takes. So you just have to go for it. Uh, a lot of our guests have been able to say like, well, I think this person really went for it and it worked for me. I tend to stick more towards like they went for it and it didn't work for me, but I'm interested to hear what you have to say. So given the ambiguous nature of the prompt, I had thought of like a couple different interpretations and had different answers for them. (laughs) Uh, And so I would say like with the version that you've just said, uh, the version that worked for me was the uh, both Amanda Plummer and uh, Ed Spillier's really just like, going for it and giving big, bold, immediately registers with you as a viewer performances. And I loved that. Uh, and then, I think those are great choices. I had Amanda Plummer also for my Shatner, but I let's for a minute compare the two because you just put them both. Why not just to do? Why not just do both of them? Because maybe there's a conversation here. Did both of okay. them, because you're totally right about Ed Spleer's but did one succeed a little bit more than the other? And on this basis alone, it seems like Ed Spleers had the harder job. That's true. Did he nail the harder job? I actually am. This isn't a spoiler folks, but like, I think this role is incredibly difficult and almost unfairly written because he is a purely reactive in backed into a corner character. Who's at least the mm, eighth yeah. most, He's at least at all times the eighth most important person in an episode, even though the show is a, about him, kind of. But he can't do yeah. anything. He has to react to anything, everything. So he doesn't really have his own wants and needs. He's at the mercy of other characters' needs and desires, the story's needs and desires, the show's needs and desires. I'd, it's a really tough part. And it's, I think that's why sometimes... For some people, Ed Spleers slash Jack does register for some people, and other times he either grates or doesn't register. 
but at least on the Amanda Plummer, Ed Spleer's connection, Amanda Plummer is asked to do one or two things. And I think she, she doesn't nail them. She, she obliterates them. So yes, <laughs> she really is. It's a memorable moment, just her appearance here. And I don't know if that's the same about Ed Spleer's, but I'm interested to hear what you think about that. Well, I, you know what? Let's, 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 let's just nuance the shit out of this. Uh, Ed Spleer's gets the Shatner. Amanda Plummer gets the Montalban. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> For this episode, that, we've got yes. <laughs> yeah, and so like yes, and and that, uh, and there are, as I mentioned, echoes of Shatner in Spilliers, uh, in a good way, and Plummer, like her performance, reminded me of something that Ricardo Montalban said years after Wrath of Khan when he was, uh, when he was interviewed about it, and he said, you know. With a role like this, you want to go right to the edge of ridiculous and stop. <laughs> you go a little too far, eh, you are ridiculous. You want to go right to the edge and stop. And that is where you have to trust your director. And uh, and so I think that there's a lot of that in her performance. And Spolier's performance, you're totally right about him not having agency. I actually found that I thought, like, I had a little bit of a a knee jerk like oh give me a break that guy's supposed to be 23 when his character was first introduced and then like i i i think i agree with the casting of him because like it's so hard that role is so hard and the things that he has to do like in so many different ways like I think it's probably the most difficult role to perform of the season and he does fantastic with it. I tend to agree. And uh, I mean, also let's look at Amanda Plummer's role a little bit more. She looks like that old Martin short character, Ed Grimley with the haircut, which she chose. She chose that hairstyle. That's okay. Go. It's SCTV, Ed Grimley. (laughs) Uh, But it's, it's an old character, Martin shorts. And her voice, the way she changes it, modulates it, it's it's intentionally goofy. You know, especially the mm-hmm. way she's sort of giggling at the end. She goes, follow him. You know, it's she's just being yeah. a goofball, but she's also incredibly menacing. So she's, you know, she is a sports car. And it seems like Ed Spleers is a minivan with like a tow hitch that he's got so much to balance. He's got the, all these people in the van with him, all these things, those baggage he's carrying, and he's just got to drive straight and get there on time. And and yeah, I think he's he's memorable for sure. I, I like that. The Montalban for, for a plumber, for sure. That's great. All right. What part of this incident or part of this episode are they teaching at Starfleet Academy? Always put up transport inhibitors <laughs> like, they should just yeah <laughs> like like when in doubt when you're in an uncertain situation always put up transport inhibitors and uh like there's a moment where jack is like what are you doing he's like i'm putting up the transport inhibitors he didn't say it but like you see it and that's great and it's like this should be de rigueur this should be default always always do that all right. So for Star Trek Picard season three, we're not asking what you think the predecessor show or captain would do in the situation. We're asking because it's mentioned in the first episode that 
Jean-Luc Picard is considering writing his memoir. Uh, what part of this episode is Picard embellishing or outright omitting from his memoir? <laughs> I think the version he writes in his memoir of this story goes, from the moment I saw him, I knew he was my son. Oh my God, that was my exact one. <laughs> was it? It was. I would say he's probably downplaying or omitting the parts where Riker is asking him if he sees the resemblance in Beverly's son. He will say in his memoir, of course, I knew right away. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, that's for sure. (laughs) Uh, I mean, it'll be like, basically, that's the thing. It's part of my issue with this episode and why I actually feel like it's the weakest of the season. And overall, I mean, that speaks to the season being very good. But I'm like, this entire episode in Picard's memoir is a line. It's like, uh, we found my son. We we found uh, Jack. As soon as I, it, it took me a moment to digest it. But I knew immediately he was my son. And we absconded to the nebula. <laughs> like... <laughs> end of chapter one yes uh the episode does actually set up raffi's emotional story for the season such as it is um so it does it does some things but i think you're right it is a little bit like this whole thing does get compressed down to a line we do have some stuff between seven and shaw that expands mm-hmm. that dynamic and we learn some more and sets up things a little bit later which is good too but yeah trek marry or kill disengage what do you say joel I would trek it. Yeah, me too. So definitely a trek. Trek against ALS. And that's the website, right? Trekagainstals.com that people can go check out. And uh, go check that out. You can see the video from Jerry Ryan and all the other Star Trek stars, but mostly to help out someone who's really in need right now against this terrible illness. And the money, some of the money will go eventually to the ALS organization. If you liked that episode, consider giving us five stars on Apple Podcasts. Check out all of our Trek, Mary, and Kill rankings, standings at trekmarykillpod.com or follow us on social media at trekmarykpod.com. Until next week, when we'll be back with an all-new episode, TMK out. <laughs>